Our second reading today is continuing in our study of John, the second half of the chapter 16 of John that Stephen Clark was preaching from last week. This is part two of that little section of the discourse. And the context of this passage in John's gospel is really the far-reaching final conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. Basically, their last time with him before the crucifixion. In our Bibles, this very intimate time appears as chapters 13 through 17. It's quite lengthy. I invite you to picture this in your mind's eye as I read it, as if we were sitting in among the disciples. Now, Jesus began this lesson, chapter 13, by washing their feet as they reclined at the table before the supper. He continued through the meal. Judas left. And at a certain point, Jesus said, rise, let us go from here. It's the time of the Passover, and the city of Jerusalem is full. Jesus and the 11 disciples have left the upper room, crossed the city heading east, passed through the walls at the eastern gate, and wound their way down into the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Jesus stops to pray for them. And for all disciples yet to come, a beautiful, moving time of intercession, which we really must take to heart. That's next week, chapter 17. We then cross the book of Kidron and climb up into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, where we meet up with Judas Iscariot and the entourage that he has led there to arrest Jesus. So our scripture passage today occurs just before Jesus' prayer which I think is very notable because you'll see that just when his disciples are at the height of sorrow and confusion, Jesus stops moving and turns and prays for them. And he does the same for us very specifically. So we listening and must be down in the Kidron Valley now, close to the brook. He's already told us things that have set our inner alarm on full alert We hear faint echoes from the city above and the sounds of the night and the water nearby and the voice of the Lord, close, earnest, full of love. Jesus said to them, a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will Not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers her anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for their Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are, right in the middle of Jesus' concluding remarks to his disciples before he's ripped away. You know how under extreme circumstances it can be hard to take in everything that's being said? That would explain why Jesus seems to have been leaning hard on certain things throughout the evening. You may have recognized a lot of these themes that he spoke in this passage from the weeks before. He's told them that it's time for him to leave this world and go to his father. He's told them that several times, that they can't go with him now, but later they can. He'll go to make a place for them and he'll come back to take them there. He's been talking about the Father sending another advocate, the Spirit of truth, who will guide them into all truth. But this can't happen unless he leaves. Everything Jesus is telling them, both terrible and wonderful, he says, he tells them, he's telling them so he can remember, they can remember, and they won't fall away from confusion and despair when the dark times come. He can see that their hearts are filled with sorrow, but he reminds them again that what's going to happen is best for them. Because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus still has many things to say to them, he tells them. But he says the disciples would not be able to bear it now. But he firmly reassures them that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all the truth. Taking what belongs to Jesus. Including the things that he hasn't yet told them. And declaring it to them. You can imagine it's hard for the disciples to understand They don't know when all these things are going to happen. It sounds like he's talking about things that are coming, that are already here. Also might not be until who knows when. Jesus, their teacher, flesh and blood, standing in front of them, talking about going away and coming back. They want to be prepared, but they can't really fathom what's going on. Who, what, when, how, and where. He must be speaking in parables again. What is he talking about, they ask one another. And that question by the disciples is the beginning of our passage for today. The passage presents three big ideas. These are first, Jesus is listening, and his grace is greater than earthly sorrow. Second, Jesus speaks about a day when they will ask anything of the Father in his name and they will receive it. That's a big idea. And finally, Jesus exhorts us to take heart. In him, 
we may have peace, for he has overcome the world. So the first thing I want to note is that when some of the disciples are freaking out in the background because they don't understand what's going on, Jesus approaches them to help them. What happened there? Were they too afraid or too ashamed to come right out to him with their questions? Did they feel too out of control at the moment? Think about it. When things are breaking loose in your life and you have big doubts about what's happening, is your first impulse to spread out your hands to the Lord and ask for light? Or are you going to decide that Jesus is so off your wavelength that you're going to have to figure this one out for yourself and you double down on that? Because that's what they were trying to do. Anyone ever decide that God must have turned his back on you? No point in talking to God because God's not listening. Jesus was listening. And he spoke to them. Not to tell them when he would go, how long he'd be gone, or when he'd return. Not to their desire for control of the time frame and the mechanics of the situation. But to their need to know that he knows what they're going through. And that in the end, they will be safe and well and joyful. Not just life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the American dream, but something far greater. Jesus answered them and spoke to them with the image of a woman in labor, crying out in anguish because it feels like her body is tearing itself apart. She doesn't know how long it will last, but while it's happening, she may well ask herself how she ever got into such a terrible predicament. You know, birth pangs, right? The term has come to mean the difficulty and the pain we can expect to experience when something new is coming into being. And the intense pleasure of receiving a tiny new life into your arms that causes the physical memory of that pain to be swallowed up by joy. Am I right? I've heard that childbirth is no longer painful, but I do recall thinking when I was giving birth to my first of three sons, I'm never doing this again. (laughs) Then when I was kissing his little toes, I was thinking, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Behold, I make all things new, says the Lord. So even now, when we're in the middle of the suffering of uncertainty, I feel like that many days when I open up the newspaper or listen to what's happening. When we're in the middle of the suffering of uncertainty, can we allow the Holy Spirit to settle us with the thought that God must be doing something new? It's probably the thing that I need right now coming into being. Let me see if I can cooperate with him and help to pray it in with faith the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things unseen. Can I cooperate with the new thing that God is doing, surely doing, and bringing into being? Jesus said to his disciples, So you have sorrow now in the birth pangs of this new thing, but a time will come when I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is listening. He knows what we need. And his grace is greater than earthly sorrow. But let me not make light of the human condition. 
listen, that word from Jesus to the disciples was great, but it wasn't the end of the story for them. It wasn't like a name it and claim it moment for them. Here in the darkness before Gethsemane, Jesus was preparing them to travel through the real and overwhelming sorrow and horror he knew they would soon experience. He knew better than they did. As they saw him betrayed by their friend, dragged away, framed by religious leaders, sentenced for execution, brutally punished, dragged out to Golgotha and hung on a cross beam. There was the darkened sky, the earthquake, and his final yell, Telestai, it is finished. Did the disciples take that as a victory cry when they heard it? Were they greatly relieved? No, they scattered into hiding while his body was taken away and sealed in a tomb under Roman guard, deeply shocking, crushing for them, terrifying. And then the silence and the certainty that they had failed. They were sure that they had failed. Only later would they realize the grace that had happened. To tell us die, paid in full. But for a while, they just couldn't imagine a good ending to this story. Except maybe, in the back of the mind, a quiet voice saying the enigmatic, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will be filled with joy. We do have sorrow in this world. How often is life easy? Being a Christian doesn't insulate us from experiencing deep sorrows. Sorrow can stem from disappointment when things don't go as we hope or expect or believe they must go. God is always at work in our lives, in your very life, though we don't always remember it. God's power to bring about his plan is far greater than our power to control anything. Sorrow can stem from believing that we failed personally, not realizing what God has in store for us or how powerful Jesus is to undo the works of the evil one or how great a redemption is always ahead of us in Christ. Sorrow can stem from the thought that evil is winning. Sorrow can stem from living in this fallen creation, especially seeing the degradation of the earth and of human society that has come upon us through carelessness or greed or insecurity or ignorance. As Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He knew. Sorrow is a long story. Consider Genesis 3.17. God said to Adam, curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That was the beginning. Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. That's us. Sorrow is a long story that began in the beginning, but in the end, Revelation 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with humankind. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the not yet. The end of sorrow may be a long way off, but it doesn't have to take us down in the meantime. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, speaks to that time in between the beginning and the end, where we are right now. He says, 
I'm remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may open the eyes of your hearts, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, the working of that mighty power that he used to raise Christ from the dead and seat him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above every name that is named, not only now but in the age to come. Paul wrote that letter from prison. He was under some authorities, earthly authorities. He was above them because he was in Christ, bearing witness himself that Jesus is listening and his grace is greater than earthly sorrow. Second big idea, Jesus speaks about a day in which we will ask anything of the Father in his name and he will, we will receive it. He will give it. He will receive it. Now, what does that mean? What exactly are the mechanics of receiving whatever you ask of the Father in Jesus' name? I'm sure we've been wondering about that for a long time. How does this work? Is this some sort of magic formula we can use in Jesus' name? And when is that day, that day that is coming? Has it come? Is it here now? Is it still to come? I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the idea of already and not yet. We used to travel a lot down to the, uh, into the Appalachian Range in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina. If you've ever been there, you'll know that when you get up on top of the highest peaks and look out, those old mountains are worn down into row upon row of soft blue-green ridges and milk, milky bands of clouds filling in each valley in between, stretching off to a distant horizon. The range is behind you, you're standing upon it, And it stretches out incalculably before you. Jesus and the prophets all spoke like this. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus said. When the Holy Spirit was given, we now have God dwelling within and among us like we never had before. And yet, we still see through a glass dimly. And then, face to face. It's all ready, but not yet. In prophetic language, every ridge and valley could represent a partial fulfillment of the fullness of time. And as you touched each one in turn, you could say, has this day already come? Yes. Is it now here? Yes. Is it still to come? Yes. In this case, as Jesus speaks of that day is coming when your joy may be made complete. And we know that God is always more. God is always more. We don't have it all yet. More to come. Now, I think that with respect to asking for anything in Jesus' name, we must look carefully at this context. Yes, in one of his letters, John wrote of asking anything according to God's will and receiving it. And that is how we often understand this. And that is how we often pray, Lord, if it be your will. However, here and elsewhere in John, Listen to this, because this is really, really important. Wherever John talks about one's joy becoming complete, like he's talking here, he is really talking about fully coming into knowledge, fully sharing all that needs to be spoken, fully bearing witness so that our joy may be complete. He says it in his letters. He wants to have a conversation face-to-face and share everything so that their joy may be complete. He says it in another letter, he wants 
to explain everything that happened about Jesus Christ so that all the knowledge of the gospel of the good news would be with us and our joy will be complete. He's talking about the knowledge of Jesus. This is what he is promising the disciples in that day. They can ask. They can ask of the Father, what's the answer to this question? What's going on here? Who are you? Tell me more about yourself, about your will, about your plans, about your goodness, about your mercy, about your holiness. And it will be ours. So look at what's happened in this instant. Jesus is saying things. He's been saying things he knows the disciples can't understand yet. He has things to say to them that they can't bear to hear yet. And he's not even telling them. And yet they are in great distress because they don't understand and they don't know. So here Jesus is promising not a blank check for prayer if we say in Jesus' name. Or as we probably experience it more honestly, a lottery ticket for prayer in Jesus' name if he might Give us what we're asking for. Not the list of requests to fill out and send in, but that we may ask the Father all the questions that are on our hearts, all the truth that the Holy Spirit is sent to lead us into, all the wisdom that we desire concerning the will of God, and he will certainly answer, and our joy will be complete. Now, isn't that amazing? Far more precious than gold. To know the living God. When will all this happen? Already, but not yet. Finally, the third big idea is the idea of being in Christ, not being alone, and taking heart. Just before he prayed for his disciples, Jesus said this, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's an issue here about being alone that I think is subtle but important. We might ask, did Jesus leave the disciples all alone when he went to the cross? Weren't they orphans over that one terrible weekend? And if so, does that leave open the possibility that he might somehow, sometime, also leave us alone? That's one of those questions that might be in the back of the mind, in the darkness. But I think not, and I will tell you why. Notice Jesus' particular wording when he says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own place, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Follow me now. Notice he does not say, The hour is coming when I will leave you alone. Or even the hour is coming when you will be alone. But he says the hour is coming when you will leave me alone. Yet I am. This is the present tense, the active voice, the indicative mood, a fact that is ongoing right now. I am not alone. For the Father is with me. Then he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Jesus told them many times in the discourse to remain in him. Not later, but now. He tells us the same. Now, if we are in Jesus, and Jesus is with the Father, therefore not alone, it makes sense to me, mathematically in a sense, that neither we nor they are ever abandoned or left alone by God at any time, past, present, or future. 
We are not alone. And now take heart. In Greek, it is a single word, tharsete, and it means to live out the inner confidence that comes from being infused with strength by the Spirit of God. Yes, it means all of that. Have courage, take heart, be infused with strength from the inside out by the Spirit of God. It means that you've been touched by God. Where else do we see this exhortation in the New Testament? It's on the lips of Jesus. In these five situations, Jesus says to a paralyzed man lying on a bed, take heart, your sins are forgiven. He was touched by God's pardon. Jesus says to the suffering woman who touched the hem of his garment, take heart, your faith has made you well. She was touched by God's power. Jesus says to the terrified disciples who see him walking on the water, take courage, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. They were touched by God's presence. Jesus says to Paul after he was arrested in Jerusalem and he didn't know how his future would play out. Take heart, take courage. For as you witness to my cause in Jerusalem, you must witness also in Rome. Paul was touched by God's purpose. And Jesus says to his dismayed and bewildered disciples here who are about to scatter, take heart, have courage, for I have overcome the world. They would be touched by God's peace. Now turn to someone near you right now and say this to them. Have courage. You're not alone. Have courage. You're not alone. You're not alone. I'll tell you a true story about being in Christ and not being alone. My dad was a medical doctor. Despite healthy living, he developed an aggressive cancer with little hope of recovery. When it was determined that none of the treatments were going to help, he sighed one day to my mom, Kitten, I'm just not ready for the tank yet. He meant the embalming tank. We were so distressed when mom told us about this, that that graphic image and the thought that he would have to leave before he was ready, it was heartbreaking. But clearly the Lord came to him and comforted him because a week later, He invited all the family to come from Tennessee, from New York. He called us all together in the living room. He was wearing his world's greatest grandpa sweatshirt that we had given him for his birthday. And he had a look on his face that was serious, gentle, and a loving smile all at the same time. He knew that he would be dying soon. He gave us permission to mourn. He said, I'll know you'll grieve and be very sad, but that's okay. Feel free to mourn just as you need to, because I know I'll be irreplaceable in your lives. After all, I'm the world's greatest grandpa. But don't be afraid for me or sad for my sake. I know where I'm going to be with my Lord, and I can't wait till that day. After he died, my little niece, about three years old, brought me a Bible Read me some stories about Grandpa, she said. I was a little startled until I realized that she had been told that Grandpa had gone to be with Jesus. And she knew that in the Bible there were stories about Jesus. So she figured that she would find her Grandpa in those stories too. And that is one way to think about being in Christ. Have courage. Take heart. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. We call upon your name. We need your love. We need your encouragement. We need your nearness more than we even know. But once we have tasted of you, we have seen you, we have felt you near, we have heard your voice, we know that there's nothing like you in all this world, and we are yours. So help us to remember this today and to be deeply, deeply changed. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.